Good to see y'all. Um, okay, I have the fun uh, pleasure of talking about uh, Carl Jung today in my Saints, Mystics, and Misfits series. And um, yeah, it's, it has been a challenge to, to try to talk about what I think are influ influential misfits and thinkers and mysterious beings and, uh, in the world and, and also my relationship, you know, like what is the relationship between um, some of these thinkers and writers and so forth and my, and my own life. And that's kind of been the doorway in. And so everything I want to say about Jung today has been um, personally helpful to me. And, and if I do it well enough, you'll at least see how it's personally helpful to me and, and maybe personally helpful to you. We'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, and it's, uh, Jung in particular is a bit challenging to talk about in, in 40 minutes. And what I'm not going to do is tell you about his life and when he was born and all the stuff you can get on Wikipedia. I want to kind of enter straight into the, to the stream of how I first sort of encountered Jung and how it began to sort of reshape my life in, in sort of a surprising way. And I guess I want to start off by saying um, it's from Jung that that we get the idea of the first half of life and the second half of life. That's one of his phrases, the first half of life and the second half of life. And, and something like what we call midlife, or now the midlife crisis, is that bridge between the first half of life and second half of life. And, um, and you don't have to cross the bridge. That's the funny thing. Now, you, you have to get older, sorry, but that's, that's a guarantee. You have to keep growing up and aging and so forth, but that doesn't necessarily mean you'll make that perilous journey from the first half of life to the second. You might just repeat the first half again, something like that. And one of the interesting things about this Jungian idea of the second half of life is that he encountered it, of course. Like, he passed through it and was surprised by his own encounter with it and then began to see it in his sort of patients and uh, the people that he worked with. And it goes something like this. We spend the first half kind of getting our life together, taking a few personality tests, you know, maybe even get a little therapy if you're advanced, if you're really doing the first half of life well. Maybe you, you figured out uh, how to have an intimate relationship or you stumbled your way into the first few intimate relationships. Maybe you have kids. Maybe you're able to hold down a job. You have a sense for what you do in the world and how you're made up and, and so forth and so on. And, and people will recognize you and say, oh, yeah, yeah, there's Kent. Yeah, we kind of know him. He's like, he talks in front of people. He says things. He quotes Jung a lot. Um, you recognize me and I recognize you. First half of life stuff. And then, then, then something of that world starts to crack. And maybe it's like a divorce, or we get fired, or we're standing up one day in front of thousands of people giving a sermon, and there's this inner voice that says, who is the one talking right now, you know? So I'm just making that up, you know, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> um, and those are cracks. And to use, to use Jungian language, those are cracks in the ego and our persona, and who we think we are in, in the world. And, and those cracks 
are, are enormous invitations to the deeper realms. You've heard the phrase depth psychology. That's all that means is cracks in that ego frame to the deeper realms. And you can, you can as um, Adrian Rich says, you can either go through that door or not go through that door. The door itself makes no promises. All right, so. and, then, and then the underworld opens up. And this is the passage to the second half of life. And then so, so something like your first personality falls apart. <laughs> and maybe if you're lucky, it's put back together. This is the dismemberment and remembrance uh, remembering of ancient mythology. Lots of dismembering stories. Or we could call them death and resurrection kinds of stories. Okay, so in the second half of life, you begin to, to be fed by deeper streams that maybe were there all along, but you had forgotten a bit about. Maybe you give up on certain roles and ideas and ideologies and religions, and, and you're informed by something else. And it's not exactly, this, it's not like you get an email that says, welcome to the second half of life and here's your new resume, all right? There's no such thing. It's, it's now a, a deeper conversation that begins to take place. Now, why am I saying all that is because something like this started happening to me. My own life started falling apart. And in part because of Jung, and I think I discovered Jung through Joseph Campbell, because I realized like, oh, he just, well, he actually says, I, Basically, everything I'm saying, I'm getting from Jung, <laughs> besides the actual content of the myths and so forth. But the ideas, the frame, and I was like, who is this person? And, and, it, it, and I started diving in a bit, started discovering you know, what he had to say, and, and it started informing my life in certain ways. And I started to get hungry for a second half of life, and I started to enjoy in quotation marks, the unraveling of my own life. Now, not really. Who likes to suffer? I mean, but it's like, okay, this suffering isn't meaningless. That was the major message I was getting from him. This suffering isn't meaningless. And if you'll follow it far enough, you'll, you'll discover threads you didn't know were there. That's, the, that's what I started to believe. And that's what I started to experience. And, and, um, and also, I might add at this point, that... Um, I, at, it was about this time that I started discovering my own dreams. Right? This started at Animus Valley Institute, this um, place that leads programs out in the wild, but also DreamWork is a part of that. And about eight years ago, I'd say, um, maybe a little more now, I'm, I'm sort of losing track of time. I don't even know how old I am right this second, somewhere in the 40s, 46-ish range, um, I, I took a program, and that was the very first time I ever had a dream worked. Like, I had a dream. I would have, if you would ask me, hey, do you dream? I'd say, no, not really. I remember a few childhood dreams, but that's about it. And so the guides were like, well, write your dreams down, and then we'll, we'll work with them in the morning. And so I was like, oh, okay. And just innocently wrote one down, and I happened to remember one, and then my whole life fell apart. <laughs> and that very first time, so, so at Animus, it, it follows a certain style of, of dream interpretation. That has to do with Jung, but there are all kinds of different styles. That's less interpretive, but much more like um, allowing the dream to come back to life to sort of work, work on us. So if you told me your dream, I'd say, well, close your eyes and go into it. 
and you would close your eyes and just go into the dream, and then it would start to come alive again. And it's very, it's very powerful, and that's what happened to me. And I was like, I don't know what this world is. That was my major conclusion. I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't know why, who I am, and I don't know what this thing is. I don't know what a dream is. I don't even know who the I is in the dream. There are like people I'm meeting that seem to have a life and uh, an emotional life and desires that are in conflict with mine, and I dreamed it. So what is this? What is this realm of the unconscious, meaning stuff I'm not that aware of? And of course, I've been into dreams ever since, and uh, here's a little line from, from Jung on dreams, just to give you a little flavor. Um, so he says, the more our unconscious is influenced by... Um, prejudices, fantasies, infantile wishes, and the lure of external objects, the more the already existing gap will widen out into a neurotic dissociation and lead to an artificial life far removed from healthy instincts, nature, and truth. Dreams try to establish the equilibrium by restoring the images and emotions that express the state of the unconscious. It's like they have a point of view. And they're, they're trying to help us reestablish a more healthy relationship with our own deep instincts. Now, that's an opinion of his. Most people think dreams are random brain firings, because you know what? It's easier to believe that. They're like, ah, oh, it's a bunch of nonsense. You know, but he's saying, no, there's something else at work. Every night when you go to sleep, you know, a third of your life, the unconscious is trying to get your attention and, and reestablish a balance, an equilibrium between the deep instincts, your deep self, and the thing you call your life, that you're going around your waking life. So we might want to pay attention to them, and he says every culture, spirituality, religion has paid careful attention to dreams. That was his way. And he got the idea, you know, Freud also uh, worked with dreams too, but I don't want to get into all that right this second. Um, and I'll maybe just one aside. I, I work with dreams now because now I've had training and all this kind of stuff. And, and I, sometimes I have this feeling like if someone comes to me and says, and I ask them, hey, tell me about your life. And they say, oh, yeah, this, 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 and this. And I'll think, oh, yeah, that's all true. Thank you for telling me about, about, about your life. And but if I say, well, now tell me a dream, then it's like we, we go in the back door of the house. And it's like, okay, we, you just showed me the nice living room and how everything was set up and your family photos and your bookshelf, but let's just go in the back door and then we'll go down to the basement and see what's really going on. That's a dream, okay? Okay, so that was a, a kind of an introduction to first half of life, second half of life. Um, and my sort of way in, which was through the realm of dreams and, and beginning to, to read some Carl Jung. And um, one more idea that, that comes up out of this, and then I'll sort of describe a sort of map of the psyche as best I can in a, in a short amount of time. The other notion that Jung um, stated was that he had two personalities, okay, personality number one and personality number two. Now, when I first read that, my, my feeling was, well, that's not a good thing. <laughs> uh, don't you want to be like a whole person and, you know, like get, you know, be straight ahead and authentic and, you know, two personalities? And one big difference between Freud and Jung is that um, 
Jung worked with schizophrenics, so he knew something about, about um, multiple personalities. And he was the first person, by the way, to take schizophrenics seriously instead of medicating them and tucking them away. He said, I'm going to take their fantasies seriously and see what they tell me. And believe me, they, they speak in volumes, and they speak in archetypal volumes, but we won't get into all that. All right. So he said, here are my two personalities. Personality number one is Jung, the scientist, the author, the psychologist, the doctor of medicine, the father, the husband, um, the man who wears a, you know, a suit coat and smokes a pipe and you know, so forth and so on. That's personality number one, and very important. I mean, wouldn't you, you'd like to have a personality number one. Personality number two is everything else. <laughs> And it's the much more mystical side. It's the world of his own dreams and imaginations and artwork and calligraphy and the deep wanderings that would be one way of describing of that he took his own deep imagination journeys deeper and deeper into the unconscious realms. And, and that's very hard to describe. And it's also objectively real. It's as real as personality number one, and they never really get resolved, he says. We just learn to live with the paradox, and they, they learn to be in dialogue with one another over time. Instead of just bowing down to one personality, usually personality number one, and not knowing too much about personality number two. Now, that concept both intrigued me and scared me, and I started to also know what he was talking about, really. Like, if I were to tell you my dreams and visions, and strange altered states of consciousness, you'd be like, oh, okay. And you'd feel a little uncomfortable. But if I told you my resume, and that I have a, you know, a graduate degree, and I studied this, and I know how to parse Hebrew verbs, and so forth, you'd say, oh, yes, 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 that makes sense, yeah. But we're all like this, he would say. We all, we're that complex, which is why I, I called the title of today's little chat on Jung, The Undiscovered Self. And that's what I want you to wonder about. What do I not know about myself? Do I have a personality number two? <laughs> How much do I know about it? How much would I like it to have an influence or a say in my life you could wonder something about? And, and maybe more importantly, which I already said, I'll just say it again more directly, what do I not know about who I am? And once you're able to ask that question, you're in the realm of depth psychology and you're in the realm of Jung. And, and those have, that have followed you know, his footsteps, I suppose. Okay, are you with me so far? <laughs> All right. Now you probably uh, want to know what my strange dreams, visions, fantasies, and altered states of consciousness are. Another time. Okay, I want to talk about a map of the psyche at this point. So the first thing I want to say is kind of a cliche, uh, but it's true. The map is not the same as the territory. Okay? Everything I'm going to say is not the same thing as you being you and having a life. But a map is useful because when you're wandering around in the labyrinth of your own life, every once in a while you get lost or every once in a while you think you know where you are. And so it's useful to have a map to just wonder, well, you know, where am I here? Is, is this making any sense? Does this fit? So that's all a map is. And Really, the map of the psyche, this Jungian map of the psyche, that's all it's meant to do. It's just meant to provide certain parameters. We're not really talking about a theory that we can argue about, and we're just saying 
it's a model or a map, and the degree to which it's useful or not is just that, the degree to which it's useful. So that's the way I want you to just hold what I'm about to say. But we're going to go on a journey. We're going to go on a journey of the psyche. Psyche is the Greek word for soul. Um, and we're going to sort of descend down into the layers and kind of just explore the underground terrain, and we'll see how useful it is. So you ready? Well, I'm doing it anyway. Okay. I want to start with something like kind of dumb and obvious, which is the experience of the outside world. There is such thing as the outside world. Now, we don't need to get into a, a philosophical discussion about does reality exist, but let's just say for most of us, every single day, our ordinary life, there's the outside world and then there's me. Are you with me so far? And how do you know there's an outside world? Because if I were to throw this big black book at you and hit you, you'd say, hey, that came from the outside world. And Kent is a jerk. <laughs> so that's how we experience reality. And now we're experiencing that in our psyches. There's still an internal realm. But that it's the border between those realms that we begin a conversation of the map of the psyche. And the border between the external and the internal is called the persona. Okay, Persona is the... Greek, or Latin, I can't remember which, word for um, mask. It's, it's Greek, okay, for mask. It's the face that we show the world. And like right now, the, the person giving this talk is the persona of Kent Dobson. It's my persona. I'm not exactly pretending, but it's a mask I wear. And, and I'm, I'm fairly comfortable in it, and you're for the most part, I, at least as far as I can tell, comfortable enough that you're still in this room. You're not running away. You know, like, okay, well, we kind of know what to expect here, and he's going to ramble for a while, and then we'll be done. So that's my persona, all right? And, and it's absolutely essential and necessary. There's nothing wrong with it. You know, it kind of sounds like an insult, so-and-so's wearing a mask, but it's not. It's just the border that meets the outside world. And if you don't develop a persona, you're actually in real trouble, because People won't know where to put you and, like, where do you stand? And give me something. Give me something. That's why one of our first questions is, hey, what do you do? All we're asking for is, like, give me a little of your persona so I know how to categorize you and I know how to relate to you and so forth and so on. And, and some personas come with a lot of baggage, you know, because you're not the first. Like, if I say to somebody in the street, I'm a former pastor, do you, do you feel how that might have nothing to do with me? <laughs> Okay, but it's part of the persona. So there's like cultural elements to it and so forth and so on. But you have one, I have one. When you go out on a date, I hate to tell you, it's not two true authentic selves meeting, it's two personas, you know? When you fill out the online dating form, you're just filling out your persona. That's all you're doing. It's your mask, okay? The question is, is there anything beneath that? And then we start to go down the, the layers here. So beneath that, or um, right beneath that, we could, we'll place the ego, okay? The ego. Now, the ego is an interesting uh, word in and of itself because Freud and Jung, in their German writings, did not use the word ego, all right? The translators, particularly of Freud, thought the word that they were using in German, which was just the word I, was not sophisticated enough. 
So they, they said, well, let's just choose uh, the Latin ego, because that sounds fancier. Like, if, as soon as I, if I just we was talking about the I, you'd be like, oh, that's kind of boring. But as soon as you say ego, it's like, ooh, yes, yes, the ego. Yes. All it is is the I. Who do you think you are? That's the ego. I am this. I am that. I think this. I feel. Well, I just think this about this, 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 and I just feel this, and I'm all about this, and, and I took a personality test, and I'm this, and I'm an, uh, an uh, INTJ or an ENFP, and, and oh, those are typologies, which is also Jungian. I'm not going to spend time on there, but he came up with you know, the Myers-Briggs, basically, extroversion, introversion, and the four functions. That's all uh, Jungian. That's the I, that's the ego. So just think. Who do I think I am? And, and more than that, it's the seat or the center of our conscious awareness. That's the most important thing. The ego is just my conscious awareness. It's, it's uh, okay, here's, a, here's a, a dumb metaphor. The yolk is the ego, and the white of the fried egg is everything else, is the, is the rest of consciousness or being itself. The ego is simply the yoke, the center of consciousness. So when you, what's important about that is like you can say to yourself, well, I have an ego, it's just not all of the I. It's not all of consciousness, and it's not all of being. And you know this. It makes sense. You're not making your heart beat right now. You're like, okay, again, all right, again, 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 again. Don't forget to beat again, 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 again. That is also part of your being, your essence. You're not aware of it. You could even say it's a form of consciousness if you want to be more advanced about it, but it's not in the, in the realm of the ego. You're not doing it. Have I made sense? Now, I, I want to emphasize this point because ego is not bad, just like persona is not bad. If you didn't have an ego, you wouldn't show up here, you wouldn't make friends, you wouldn't have thoughts and feelings, you wouldn't post things on Facebook. Facebook is just a collection of egos or personas and egos. That's all it is. And... Um, but you need that. You need that to function, the sense of I. If the I is fragmented too much, you're in trouble. You'll, you'll, they put, well, I won't say. You're in trouble. <laughs> okay, what else do I want to say about that? I think that's about it. Okay, maybe one more thing. And I'm going to make a generalization, and I think Jung would agree with me. An unhealthy ego, it's sense for um, the possibility of an expanded consciousness isn't very big, all right? It's very committed to its view of itself in the world. That would be an unhealthy ego. Uh, uh, an ego that's on the path toward health, health, and maybe with some help, is able to, like, move around a little bit and expand and include more of... of the outside or consciousness into its domain. Does it make sense? All right. Now, what's beneath that? And here's another, here's another image. Now we're going to go into the unconscious because the eye is conscious, uh, the ego is conscious. You're, you're aware. But what about what's beneath the surface? And here you have, like, imagine the ego is uh, the tip of an iceberg and everything else is below the waterline, and that's the mass. You know, you've heard that, you know, like with an iceberg, it's much bigger underwater. Well, that's the unconscious realm. So the ego's way up there at the top, and it's, it's looking out. It's like, yeah, yeah, I know where I am in the ocean. 
but it doesn't have a lot. It doesn't have any information about the mass that's beneath it. You get the image? And that's the, that's the realm of the unconscious, what we don't know. And the unconscious has all kinds of material in it. Like what, you would ask? <laughs> Again, I almost feel bad doing this, but this is like a McDonald's drive through version of Jungian depth psychology. Right? We're, just, we're hauling at this point. Among the first characters we meet in the realm of the unconscious are what are called complexes, or subpersonalities, some people would say, complexes. And a complex is just um, kind of an energetic package that's very potent that can actually rise up and take over the ego. In other words, it's what people mean when they say they're activated or triggered. It's a complex, actually that takes them over. And maybe, probably it's never happened to you, but you've been around somebody at some point and they feel very kind of like activated or possessed. Um, and you're like, who, is Who's, who am I talking to right now? Ever had that kind of experience? That's a complex. That's, they're, they're being taken over by something. Now, I don't want to get into how those are formed, but I'll just say something briefly about them. The complexes are formed usually in early childhood through wounds, traumas and wounds. And it's a way of responding or reacting to the world that, that gets constellated in a certain way. And at the very bottom of that constellation is an archetype. And I'll say what I mean by that in just a second. So I'll just give you a sort of a silly example. Um, let me think of one. Okay, let's say you are a people-pleasing person. But like, no, really, like really, really. And sometimes it's like that's all you can do is show up first and set up the chairs and set up the table and what can I do? And I'll also bring, pour the coffee and then I'll bake the bread and then I'll, and I'll do this and I'll help this person. And, and people actually know you as this kind of person. Are you with me so far? And so you'd start to wonder like, um, how aware of this person, how aware is this person that they're being like this? If they're not very aware, they're, they're not, then they're not very aware. <laughs> and their, their ego is, is somewhat small in its conscious awareness of how it's behaving in the world. But the complex comes up and activates, and that's how they respond to the world. So now if you go to therapy and eventually you start, or somebody over time or whatever starts to, to point out, hey, you're a real people pleaser here, and you're like, um, no, I'm not. Well, am I? Um, and what do I need to please you? In, how do I need to please you in this conversation? You start to recognize it, like, wait a minute, is that what I'm doing? And the dive will take you down into your childhood wounds and strategies. Probably something like this happened. It was unsafe in your household for one reason or another, and the only way to be safe was to please. Are you with me? I'm just giving a very, very general description of a complex. And at the very bottom of that might be something like, to use Jungian terminology, a mother complex or a father complex. That's that archetypal core. In other words, there's a pattern that fits with other people's patterns. You have a mother complex and a father complex and several others, but it manifests itself in a pretty unique way in your life, coming from your own personal wounds and stories. If it was unsafe in your house, you better believe the, the, the strategy of survival, some survival strategy is going to raise itself to help you get by. And they're good. 
That's the funny thing about a complex or a coping strategy. If you don't do it, you die, or it's very, very unsafe. So the recognition of a complex first has to come with, thank you for helping me survive the war of my own childhood by pleasing people around me or by um, withdrawing or by um, whatever. You, you, you can start to come up with a whole list of strategies or by rebelling. A rebel probably had to do that just to survive psychologically, emotionally, and physically. All right? Now, here's the problem, though, when you get toward the second half of life. Those complexes don't give up their, their, um, their posts very easily, and then they start to run your life. And then you're in real trouble, really. I mean, real trouble. Like You're just like everybody else. But <laughs> you could start to ask yourself, do I want to only survive in my life, or do I want to thrive? Is there something beneath those complexes? Am I getting a little tired of doing the same thing in every single relationship, every single time, no matter what? Where do, can that be helped in some way? Okay. Still on our McDonald's drive through map here. And so what's beneath that? Here's another version of the complex, and this is, um, or the complexes, and this is the shadow. Probably one of Jung's most important concepts, which is the human shadow. The personal shadow and the collective shadow. I'm not going to say that much about the collective field right now, but the personal shadow. The personal shadow is everything you don't know about yourself. Now, that, that right away ought to scare you. What do you mean? There's stuff about me that I don't know. Yeah, it's in the shadow. It was unsafe or unsavory to come out of hiding. Could be your own, some instinct you have or some way of being in the world, some natural instinct that wasn't allowed in your household or your childhood or whatever. And so into the shadow it went. And it's, and it's down there, tucked away, sort of festering, waiting to, sometimes at least, come out of hiding. Right? It's the human shadow. And... And, and it oftentimes, this is straight from Jung, it's the opposite of the persona, okay? <laughs> so if you're really, 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 really nice and everybody agrees, this person is just so nice, such a nice girl, such a nice boy, we can always rely on them. They've never said an unkind word in their life. Guess what's in the shadow, okay? And it's there. It's there because we're human and we all have these things. But it's really there, and, and probably at a certain point, it's not just going to come out of hiding, it's going to, to bite someone's head off. All right? It's really going to come out of hiding. And it's going to shock the person. They're going to say, that's not me, I don't know what happened to me, I must have drank too much, you know, believe me, that's not me. And I'll go right back into the shadow again. All right? So a good portion of growing in the second half of life has to do with shadow integration. What are the parts that have been repressed, neglected, ignored, and denied that need my attention. Because for me, like I'll just give you a kind of a funny example. Well, I was kind of a druggie in, 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 high, in high school, and I had this uh, sticker on my car, and it comes from a Grateful Dead song, but the sticker said on it, are you kind, okay? And it means like share drugs with me, but um, beyond that, it was also part of my persona. It was like, yeah, I'm just kind, you know, like, if someone says something offensive, you know, I'd just be like, come here, man, you know, just, 
But was I really like that? No, definitely not. <laughs> and the more I behave like that, the more the shadow grows. And then... <laughs> Another big contribution to Jung, Jung's work is synchronicities, by the way, which he calls meaningful coincidences. Right? That's, so it's, it's possible that this is a version of a synchronicity. The, the thing fell the moment I was talking about shadow. The moment I was talking about me being kind and angry and that dynamic, and boom, that goes down. Had I launched into a rage, like, damn thing, you know? See, you would know. You'd say, oh, there's the shadow, okay? All right, back on track. So what I want to tell you is that you have a shadow, and it's a lifelong project, and taking bites, that's to use a Robert Bly phrase, you start to take bites of the shadow. It's like taking the Eucharist, all right? It's like you start consuming slowly your unsavory parts. Also, your golden qualities rest in the shadow too. So if you have massive projections, like on some, say, some artist, you know, some songwriter, some, and just like you are just like wildly and profoundly in love with them and what they do, more than likely this is also something in your shadow. You haven't taken bites of your own gold. Have I made sense? And then humanity also has, uh, cultures can have a shadow. White, European, Protestant Americans have a shadow. But so does every other culture. And, that, and that's actually quite hard to see. And, but part of becoming an adult, an individuated person, that's, that's uh, Jung's language, is to begin to, to consume that and to own it and to take it back. Because anger, by the way, is a, there's a kind of vital libido or energy or even eros that's necessary just for life itself. You push it down, and it can also go the other way around, you know. I mean, anything can be in the shadow. So have I made sense enough with the material? All right. If you're saying right now, I just don't understand it, then your own understanding is in the shadow, all right? Because that's really the way it works. All right, next one down. Just briefly, I want to talk about the anim and the animus. I, I am almost done here, by the way. So underneath that, Jung started to discover that every single person on the planet, regardless of gender, has within them, within their psyche and their dreams and visions and fantasies and both masculine and feminine energies, everybody. Okay, and he called those the animus and the anima. And what he said is that every person, generally, though this, it, there are differences here, but every person needs to come in contact with what he called the counter-sexual energy of their animus or their anima, or their inner masculine or inner feminine. And without much contact there, we remain not very whole, not very rounded out. And so in a cliche sense, if you're a man, you need to come in contact with your inner feminine. Or if, you're, or if your way of thinking and being is more masculine from an energetic point of view, at some point you'll need to come in contact with your own inner feminine. And the same goes the other way around. These don't necessarily correspond to gender. That's why I wanted you to hear me say, everybody has both. Like, I could be a man and have a more feminine disposition, and I'd also need to become in contact with my masculine disposition. So there's a kind of inner marriage that's possible between our own energies that are both masculine and feminine. And a lot of times what, what happens when we're falling in love is that 
we're projecting a lot of all, all that material onto the other person. And that's fine. That's called falling in love. It's like fun. It's good. It's a good time. But at a certain point, I don't know if you've ever been in love for like more than five minutes, but the, the, it does tend to fade. <laughs> okay? And th those become real opportunities. Like, well, what was all this what was all this energy that I was thinking the other person carried? Where did it go? You know, were they just pretending? And that, that begins a more honest conversation with what's going on inside. Okay? I don't want to say a whole lot more about that. I could give about 75 talks on it, but I just kind of want to stop it at that. Okay, now we get to Jung's most controversial and, um, and interesting layer of the psyche. So we've gone persona, ego, complexes, shadow, anima and animus, and now we'll get to the self with a capital S. Now, imagine the unconscious like, is a mass of what he called primordial fires. These are, this is subatomic particles and instincts and energies and just the mat, like, 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 think about the center of the sun right now or the center of the earth. What is all that stuff? Just, and we're, we're living in that realm. These are the primordial fires. And he said, but it's not just chaos. It's not pure chaos, to allude to what um, Beth was quoting from Jung during her meditation. It's not just pure chaos down there in the fires of reality. But every once in a while, an organizing entity makes itself known. That's what he called the self, an organizing principle that wants to bring some kind of order out of the chaos. And he says that's at the heart of your being and at the heart of all being, at the heart of reality. And he gets criticized for this, but another word for that is God. But I'll put God in quotation marks, all right? An organizing image or a godlike image that wants to order things and does in fact order things and arises spontaneously from within. So Jung basically said, if we could right now wipe everybody's mind completely blank, like all of you, you know, just, I just push my hand, <laughs> it's like hypnosis. Okay, well, follow my hands, all right? And I were to wipe all of your psyches clean, you're just totally clean, tabula rasa, boom, like that, done. You've never heard of God, you've never heard of religion, you've never heard of life church next door, you've never heard of being spiritual but not religious, you know, none of that, just you're blank. Then Jung says the very next moment, the deep self would send up um, images that would want to bring some order out of the chaos of just being itself. In other words, we'll produce gods the next day if we get rid of them all. And by the way, I don't need to sound too dark. He said, that's what happened with communism. So we kicked God out and boom, uprose something, some organized. And same with fascism, okay, boom. So he says that that power, that drive, everybody has. And part of becoming an adult is becoming, coming into right relationship with this primordial self, he called it. See what I'm saying? It's kind of mysterious. And it's a bit hard to talk about. And the best way to talk about it is through images um, and stories and myths and fairy tales and dreams. Dreams can have um, images that are self-like, so forth and so on. Okay. 
I want to end with a couple things here. So the final concept that comes from Jung that, I, that has influenced me is what he called individuation. And it's a bit of a hard term right now because we live in such an individualistic culture. Like nobody can tell me what to do. I can believe whatever I want, think whatever I want. And he didn't mean individualism. He meant individuation as a process of becoming a human being, a, a more full human being. And he says there are two parts to it. The first is a, a period of separation and sifting through our own ego and complexes. That's usually what you do in therapy. Okay? You start saying, all right, why do I always do this? And down you go, sifting and sorting. And if you refuse to do that, you're just going to remain very immature. I mean, it's that, that straightforward. Not that you have to therapy, per se, but some version of sifting through your own crap. Make sense? The other is to begin a relationship with the emergence of the archetypal self. And that's what makes him a little controversial. So into your dreams, into your imagination, into your creativity, into your musings, into your artwork, into your, maybe I've already said fantasies, but fantasy realm, to explore what is being sent up from the deep self here that now needs your attention, usually in the second half of life. Really, who am I? Who am I? And how am I going to be in relationship with the deeper sense of self? Your own inner godlike image, he would say. And he says that is an individuated person. Someone who's beginning to deal with their own complexes, but is listening to some archetypal source that they're not really in control of. And that's what makes Jungian um, analysis, which I was in for a while, a lot different. <laughs> than um, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is very good, but it's not, it's not asking those questions. Have I made sense? Okay, I'm going to read you some things. Let's look at our, uh, at our bulletin here, and, and I'm just going to end just from listening to Jung himself here. All right, the collective unconscious, this is the big realm here, contains the whole spiritual heritage of mankind's evolution, born anew in the brain structure of every individual. So, born a blank slate, according to Jung, no way in hell, all right? It's like saying you have DNA and you have spiritual and mythic DNA. This is why very, very young children will dream of things like a queen on the throne. It's not from Disney. They've, they may have never seen a single throne in their life, ever, and they'll dream of that. A three-year-old. Think about that. Where does that come from? He says, from the collective field. Okay, here we go. His conscious mind is an ephemeral phenomenon that accomplishes all provisional adaptations and orientations, for which reason one can best compare its function to orientation in space. The unconscious, on the other hand, is the source of instinctual forces of the psyche and of forms or categories that regulate them, namely the archetypes. These are the big patterns. All the most powerful ideas in history go back to archetypes. This will give you something to argue about with over lunch. All, right? All the most powerful ideas in history go back to the archetypes. This is particularly true of religious ideas, but the central concepts of science... Philosophy and ethics are no exception to this rule. 
In their present form, they are variants of archetypal ideas. Science is just a variant of an archetypal idea, according to Jung. Created by consciously applying and adapting these ideas to reality. For it is the function of consciousness not only to recognize and assimilate the external world through the gateway of the senses, but to translate into visible reality the world within us. See, it's like the inner and the outer coming together. I just wanted you to hear a little from Jung himself. He's a very good writer, for one thing. All right, and I want to end with this one. This has a little bit to do, this, you'll, you'll hear um, a bit of Beth's meditation in here, and also a little what I was talking about with the shadow. Real liberation comes, from not, comes not from glossing over or repressing painful states of feeling. Real liberation comes not from glossing over or repressing painful states of feeling, but only from experiencing them to the full. That's why most people don't sign up for Jungian analysis. Because you might say, I'm feeling very terrible. And they'll say, great, let me talk you into it. Okay, Now safely, but I want to talk you into it. All right, let's keep going. By accepting the darkness, the patient has not, to be sure, changed it into light. It doesn't work like that. But she has kindled a light that illuminates the darkness from within. By day, no light is needed. And if you don't know it is night, you won't light one. Nor will any light be lit for you unless you have suffered the horror of darkness. Okay. Well, I had a good time. <laughs> it was good for me. I do want to thank you for listening. I mean, it's fun. It's been fun for me to explore these saints, mystics, and misfits, just kind of, and how, how I've been relating to them over the last few years. And for some of you to introduce you uh, to some people you maybe have never read before. A lot of people, um, they know Jung's name, but they never read a word. So thanks for, for uh, spending a few time. And, and I, a few minutes, I want to say two things just as we transition and listen to some music and so forth. Um, we're not going to have talk back today because we, we need to have another meeting. And so I want to encourage you to do a version of talk back in your mingling. I mean, I want you to just stay with these ideas. So start mingling as soon as we're done here. Um, and keep, the, keep these ideas alive and, and see what percolates. And then next week, we have uh, our annual meeting, our annual gathering. And uh, I just want to encourage you, come to it and invite everybody that that is a part of this place to come to it. It's, it's not only a celebration, but a chance for us to get together and look forward to the next year. And we have some big things that we need to deal with in the coming year. So be here next week, February 19th, for the, for the annual meeting. And I'm going to start a new series called Spirituality in the 21st Century. So it's kind of some terrain I'm planning on covering. So again, thanks for listening.